everybody. Welcome to today's One Million by One Million podcast. As you know, 1M1M is the first and only global virtual accelerator for technology startups in the world. We run it out of Silicon Valley, but with a global footprint. And our mission is to help a million entrepreneurs reach a million dollars and beyond in annual revenue. These podcasts, recently we've been focusing on speaking with investors and understanding how they view the evolving world of seed and early stage investments. So in that series, today we're speaking with Jake Seed from Stonebridge Ventures. Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ramana. Thank you for having me. So tell us about Stonebridge Ventures. What is the focus of the firm? How big is the fund? What size investments do you like to make? Yeah, so um, this is a vehicle that uh, I formed uh, after uh, my time as president of Chemex. Um, when I moved to the advisory board, I saw a tremendous amount of innovation happening in the Valley. You know, the Valley goes in waves. And right now, um, we're just seeing multiple waves that are, are really uh, replatforming the enterprise, changing uh, financial services, uh, changing many markets that are typically also in regulated sectors uh, that are now uh, leveraging technology for the first time, the power of cloud and SaaS to bring uh, software to verticals that traditionally have not bought software but are very large um, and, and yet untapped by large incumbent incumbents. And so uh, my focus is on those areas, uh, so really in and around B2B and uh, focuses on checks from a few hundred thousand to a few million. Mm-hmm. And how big is the fund? Uh, the fund has a couple structures. There's a, a very small fund that I use for pre-seed, uh, and that's really for 50K to 150K checks over the next 12 months. Uh, that's just $1.5 million. Uh, but then what I do is I raise syndicates on a deal-by-deal basis leveraging AngelList, and what I've done is really bring together not just the experience that I have building companies and working with companies, uh, but I bring in other value-add investors, executives across the valley that are relevant to those particular opportunities uh, to really help accelerate companies and not only provide an investment, but provide almost a built-in advisory board for these companies. So the power of doing it on a deal-by-deal basis while there's no established fund, it allows me to form very customized syndicates uh, depending on the focus of the company. And do you do syndicates, AngelList syndicates, also for pre-seed? I do. Well, it's basically through the fund is uh, is the pre-seed focus. And then for Series A, uh, early stage uh, companies, uh, it's typically through a combination of the fund and these customized syndicates. So my focus is on, to be very clear, leading the syndicates. Uh, I typically don't invest in other syndicates. Okay. And what um, you said you focus on B2B. So is it necessarily B2B SaaS then? Yeah, uh, there's a couple of um, important theme areas. Um, one is a software as a service. Uh, the other is marketplace models. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was what we built at uh, 10X was the largest online marketplace for real estate transactions focused on B2B investors for residential and commercial. We were selling um, 
you know, many, many billions per year uh, online. And uh, again, from a B2B perspective. So, uh, B2B marketplaces and B2B SaaS is what your specialty is. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Now, what trends do you see in your deal flow? You started off by highlighting some of the, you know, changing uh, landscapes and different segments of the technology industry. Within the spectrum that you now defined as your core interest area, B2B SaaS and B2B marketplaces, what are you seeing in the deal flow that's worth highlighting? Yeah, I think there's a number of super interesting trends. Um, you know, and again, some of these are, are maybe trite at this point, but I think still important. You know, first and foremost, artificial intelligence. And the reason I think that's so interesting is I really view it as a new architecture. And when new architectures emerge in the enterprise landscape, there's an opportunity to rethink each of the areas that have built big technology companies in the past and to say, what would that look like if you built it based on AI from the ground up? So uh, whether it's CRM or uh, whether it's uh, uh, IT service management or whether it's security, uh, really rethinking, or, or HR or customer service, there's been big companies built in each of those areas in, in Gen 1 on-prem software, in Gen 2 uh, client server software, Gen 3 uh, cloud software, and call it a Gen 4 uh, AI-based architecture, I think creates that next-gen opportunity. Uh, the other thing that's obviously happening is the uh, technology stack for most enterprises is no longer in their four walls. It's a combination of their, their technology stack on-prem and their desire to leverage the public cloud. And what that means is now you have services and applications and data that are spread, you know, and, and from the end user's perspective, they want it spread seamlessly between their internal infrastructure and public clouds, the variety of public clouds that are, are out there. There's not just obviously one public cloud. It's a, it's a multi-cloud world. It's a hybrid cloud world. And, again, rethinking uh, each of the infrastructure applications to make sense for how do you think about storage? How do you think about networking? How do you think about security? How do you think about application performance management? Again, each area that's created a big business in the past now has to be re-architected for this world of multi-hybrid clouds. And, and again, I think that's very exciting. So I'll stop there as, two, as a couple of exciting themes that I'm focused on. Of course, there are others like FinTech, real estate tech that are also being transformed pretty dramatically. And what about geography? Do you invest only in Silicon Valley, around the U.S., elsewhere? What's your preference? Um, proactively, I'm focused on Silicon Valley and opportunistically uh, will invest outside of the U U.S. or outside of Silicon Valley as well. Talk about your current portfolio. What, have you, what are the highlights? What have you invested in? How do you decide what you have chosen to invest in? Yeah, um, so again, I guess the, you know, kind of the old saying of, you know, venture firms look at great teams, big markets, differentiated technologies, so picking that as a high level and then drilling into some of the theme areas I mentioned, take AI and how AI is changing different important verticals. One investment in that theme is a company called People AI, which is applying AI to CRM and mm -hmm. really using AI to ingest the massive amounts of data that exists 
in these systems of records that sales teams use and applying insights to that so sales teams can perform better, uh, sales uh, individuals can ramp faster, and uh, sales executives can identify troubles and opportunities well before the end of the quarter effectively in real time. And because you're using AI and because you're passively collecting data, it doesn't put extra burden on the rep to enter more information. And so I think there's this theme that you'll see uh, throughout the, you know, kind of evolution of AI that a very natural insertion point is not to come and say, hey, I'm going to be the system of record, replace your existing system of record, but keep your existing system of record, and I'll be the intelligence layer on top of that and deliver tremendous value. Uh, so uh, that's one uh, company. Um, in the vertical software as a service space, um, another company is uh, Blend, uh, Blend Labs. Uh, they build software for the banking vertical. And again, this was, you know, the, the alternative that banks have today is basically PDFs and email, you know, call it paper, pencil, and the fax machine. And they're building a SaaS platform to help banks transform their lending process. So banks are realizing they need to become digital businesses more and more. Uh, the customer experience depends on it. Uh, their ability to be competitive in a world where there are disruptors like SoFi coming after them depends on it. And uh, Blend recently raised a $100 million round led by uh, Greylock and um, a new investor Emergence came in as well. Uh, so, so again, this notion of vertical SaaS as really an opportunity to come in where there aren't incumbents, there are large vertical opportunities, and you're basically replacing paper, pencil, and the fax machine. Have you had any noteworthy exits yet? You know, most of my portfolio is still uh, young and, and, and private. Uh, you know, Blend yeah, is one of the sense. later stage ones. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it started, uh, you know, really about uh, six, seven quarters ago. So uh, all my companies are still private. Right. So I'm going to ask you a few uh, industry trend questions on how the funding environment is operating right now. So first one, how do you process the current investment climate where capital is moving further and further upstream? You know, the funds, the traditional VCs are raising larger and larger funds, and they need to put in more and more capital to work in a particular deal. So how does a seed investor mitigate the Series A gap? Yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, I started in venture in 2000 and have seen a number of cycles. And I think one difference is in 2000, when I was uh, at Lightspeed, uh, we raised an $800 million fund for early stage investing. And the difference in today's world with people raising $800 million, a billion dollars, is that the funds for their early stage program are, are smaller. 400 million, 500 million, um, but then they reserve capital for follow-on rounds and later stage rounds. And the reason why they need these additional funds, why venture firms have uh, raised these additional funds for um, later stage companies is because companies are staying private longer. And you can get effectively all the benefits of an IPO without the downside of an IPO in today's environment with the amount of, of private capital out there and the way this private capital is structured. So, so to me, I think the, the, the notion that there are, are, are uh, billions of dollars that just want to do late stage is not the whole story. Um, 
the fact is the late stage market opportunity for investors have expanded literally by an order of magnitude because companies want to stay private longer and there's an opportunity for them to stay private longer. But I, I don't think for the best companies that creates a Series A gap. I think there is plenty of capital available for uh, seed and Series A companies, for high-quality companies, and it's quite competitive to get into the best companies. You have to bring something special to the table as an investor to be part of these companies. So um, I'm going to – your point about uh, the fund size being larger and, and mitigating the later stage pro rata opportunity is very well taken, but I'm going to um, elaborate on my question. And um, yes, there is a lot of competition to get into some of the deals uh, for Series A, Series B, and all that is, again, well taken. But if you look at the numbers, there are 50,000 to 70,000 um, seed stage investments a year versus 1,200 to 1,500 Series A investments. So clearly there's a lot of companies in that pool that are not getting to Series A. And uh, some of it, you know, only a percentage of those are really these hot companies, right? The hot companies by definition are few and far between, which is why there's such a competition um, and, and the drive to drive up the valuations. Um, all that is anomalies. But there's a lot of companies in the middle. And then there are the strangers, the ones that don't deserve a Series A. Again, that is kind of irrelevant because there's a lot of companies that do get seed investment and don't really pan out, and they shouldn't be raising more money. That's also not of big interest to me because that makes sense that they shouldn't get Series A. But then there is a big middle, which um, they're not these hottest companies, but they are you know, good, solid companies, and many of those are falling in the Series A gap, Series A crunch as well. You know, my view there is, um, you know, if I was coaching a founder in that category, I would say now more than ever, there are a lot of creative opportunities um, if venture capital and, and traditional venture capital isn't readily available. You know, uh, some of the most innovative, you know, new phenomena are uh, initial coin offerings and token sales, right? You know, these are companies that are effectively Series A companies raising not just millions but tens of millions, in some cases hundreds of millions. In fact, there's been over uh, several billion raised in initial coin offerings, predominantly by early-stage companies, and it's 100% non-dilutive. Um, so right, so this off. is it's worth discussing this a little bit, but there's only a specific class of companies that qualify for those. It's not like you're going to raise a, um, you're going to do an ICO for a SaaS company, for example. I disagree. I disagree. I, I you, you actually are saying that uh, companies that are SaaS companies, and and you know, it's not just somebody saying, hey, I'm going to come up with the next you know version of gold or the next version of cash or. I'm going to replace Visa. It's, you know, companies that are building applications, creating distributed applications, and, you know, cryptocurrency is becoming a way to have a business model around open source software that allows contributors to participate economically in a way that they could never have participated before. So I think that's what's, you know, actually quite interesting is there's a, a broad swath of companies that, that can and are and will be using that as a mechanism to fund their businesses. So your thesis is that some of these uh, 
ICOs basically become a form of crowdfunding? It's a form of uh, it's well, it's it's a form of crowdfunding, but it's also um, a form of allowing contributors to projects to now instead of doing it for free to actually get uh, economic incentive and economic participation in the project's success. Um, and so I, I think that's also a unique part of of the business model. It's not just a funding mechanism. Uh, it, it's a way to build a community, a distributed organization that's all economically aligned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting early trends. We are. Uh, I just talked to uh, Vinny Lingam, who uh, has done that, uh, an ICO um, offering. Uh, you know, that's right. And I'm, I'm on Vinny's advisory board, and so I I you watched know what he's uh, doing. his. Yeah, his story unfold from the early days, and and I think it's that's a great example of, you know, uh, technology. You know, uh, basically uh, a B two B technology product where you're using the blockchain for identity, that benefited tremendously from the idea of a token sale, and so again, um, not just thinking about hey, is is a cryptocurrency a form of cash or gold, but again, a uh, integral part of how distributed applications are being built. Mm-hmm. So uh, switching gears, more along the lines of what you uh, started talking about in terms of these large funds, obviously the large funds are also um, you know, fooling what we call unicorn mania. And, um, and a lot of these later stage fundings have a lot of liquidation preferences and all kinds of terms that can be very detrimental for a seed investor. So as a seed in investor, you could get buried under later stage liquidation preferences and so forth. How do you protect yourself? You know, I, I think um, the, the way you protect yourself is by, you know, uh, being early uh, and uh, you're in at a low-cost basis. And ultimately, if a company is not doing well, it's not doing well, if it's forced to take on uh, draconian terms, the, the 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 first and foremost thing that a CEO and founder has to do is do the right thing for the company, you know, not for the, the you know, the seed and Series A investors are a stakeholder and a constituent, but ultimately you have to do what's in the best interest of the company. And that's a risk that any seed and Series A investor assumes, and, you know, experienced people understand those risks. And because you're getting, you know, in at, you know, you're buying ownership, you know, each dollar you invest at seed in Series A buys a significant amount of ownership relative to what people at the later stage have bought. They get protected through preferences and ratchets, and, and you have your risk return uh, that's created by the fact that your dollar has bought, in some cases, one or two orders of magnitude more ownership than their dollar. Uh, so, so that's how you get compensated for risk. And, of course, um, if you're focused on companies that have large market opportunities and have a chance to be standalone public companies, um, ultimately when the company goes public, uh, people convert to uh, common. Um, obviously, in some cases, there are ratchets uh, in IPOs that don't go as well. But again, I'd argue, you know, uh, people who are experienced investors in seed and Series A understand these risks and, of course, always have the opportunity to save uh, some money in reserve and uh, put some money into those later stage rounds as well that might have preferences or special terms. 
I'm surprised that you haven't talked about actually selling when these, you know, very, uh, very high levels of investment start coming into a company. And, and sometimes it's not just companies that are not doing well. Sometimes if a company is a hot company, the trend has been to raise huge amounts of money. Now, there are, there are risks to raising that kind of money because, you know, valuations can get way ahead of themselves. And then in the follow-on round, you start running into down rounds and liquidation preferences and so forth. That's where the seed investors get screwed. So one of the ways a lot of seed investors protect themselves is when that kind of dynamic sets into a company, they actually sell and not remain in the deal. You know, I I view it as a case-by-case situation. I think, generally speaking, you're, you're... Again, when I make an investment, it's not just here's here's some money and I'll, I'll see you in five years. It's a it's a very close working relationship. I mean, it's in some sense almost a, it becomes a you know hand in hand relationship through ups and downs. And so you know the goal. But is, that's only in the early stages. There, I mean, when you it's when a company has gone through several rounds of financing, that relationship with the seed investors starts to slacken, and, and that's the honest truth about how the dynamics of these businesses? I, I guess, I, you know, I, I would say, uh, you know, different investors have uh, different styles. You know, um, I guess, uh, you know, maybe it's uh, been my experience. We, we, uh, we built 10X to uh, quite a large scale. I had 800 people reporting to me. You know, the Wall Street Journal reported our sale at, at $1.6 billion. You know, we built a scaled company, and so... Um, maybe, you know, just my experience as the company scales, I feel like I've been able to continue to contribute and work hand-in-hand with the entrepreneurs. Yeah, that was a bootstrap company. Of- that was not a company which had a lot of seed investments. I, I covered that story extensively, so I know the story very well. That was largely a bootstrap business. Uh, no, my, my, my point is, given I, I had scaled that business and went through that experience, my personal investment style has been to continue to work with entrepreneurs as they scale. Um, and so I can't speak for other seed investors that maybe uh, over time, um, you know, maybe they do less, maybe they don't. I don't know. I can just speak for myself where, you know, as the businesses continue to scale, I continue to work with the entrepreneur. And my goal is, you know, to, to work with them through their exit. Um, so uh, again, I think we'll see. You're some... you're still very young in the game. We'll see how that plays out. Yeah, <laughs> because it's not entirely only up to you, right? You're the entrepreneurs will. Have, I mean, people get very busy having you know run venture-funded companies. Such people get really busy, and and time becomes more uh, valuable than anything else. So doing a lot of investor relations on a continuous basis is not so easy. Yeah, and that, that's, I think, the key difference is their discussion with me is not, you know, let me give you an update um, and, and uh, you know, do an investor relations uh, discussion. It's, you know, uh, where can I help and how can I continue to help? And that's something that I focus on. I, I don't focus on taking their time to get an investor update. I don't have to update my partnership, you know, as part of figuring out how I could contribute to the company's continued success. You know, I, I stay updated on the company, but uh, that's exa- you're exactly right. You know, if they're, if they're feeling like it's an investor relations activity, uh, they're going to stop. And, and fortunately, I've been able to have a relationship where it continues to feel like a value-add discussion as opposed to investor relations discussion. 
All right, last question. We are in 2017. Lots of stuff have already been built, and these billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar opportunities are – there are those opportunities, but there's also not – you know, if everybody, every seed investor, and there's like 500-plus seed funds, and there are huge numbers of angels in the market right now, if everybody wants a multi-billion-dollar opportunity, that's just not going to – Compute mathematically, that's not a viable scenario. However, there are many, many small niche opportunities, and and there, you know, the TAMs may be smaller. The TAMs may be 100 million, 200 million dollar TAMs, and some of these businesses need to be built for small amounts of capital, one or two million dollars, sold for 10, 15, 20, 30 million dollars, and sometimes even smaller. You know, 250k, 500k investments selling for five, 10, 15 million dollars. What is, how do you parse these opportunities as an investor? Yeah, I, I guess I, 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 my view is the other end of the spectrum. I think there are more multi-billion dollar opportunities going forward. Um, I think we are in such the early stages of the enterprise being replatformed for AI, being replatformed for hybrid multi-clouds. Um, I think we're in the early stages of, financial services, you know, moving from offline to online. We're in the early stages of really knowing what the real impact of blockchain uh, is going to be. You know, these, these are like massive, massive industries all up for grabs. I mean, you look at, you know, take a, the overall IT spend versus the combined cloud revenue of um, IBM, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon, you know, it, it's tiny, and you look at the number of enterprises that have moved from, you know, traditional silo-based architectures, you know, to more of a uh, virtualized, containerized, microservice-based, internal cloud, private cloud, tiny, tiny, tiny. And these are like not billion-dollar markets. They're like $10 billion, $100 billion markets. So I'm quite bullish on the fact that, you know, you don't have to look for the niche opportunities. As an entrepreneur, you should not look for niche opportunities because you'll spend as much time working on the niche opportunity with as much risk of failure and not all the upside. And so I, I think we're in this very special time where these large opportunities are in the early innings, um, and uh, that makes it for a, a great time for both entrepreneurs and investors. All right. We disagree on that point, but uh... – Thank you for your perspective, and, and it's a very interesting discussion, especially what you um, are talking about in terms of the cryptocurrencies filling in the Series A gap was a very um, you know, interesting point to consider. I'm not sure where that is going to end up, um, but it's a very interesting um, you know, early trend that I am also seeing, and it's, it's uh, worth looking into. Thank you, have, uh, you know, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you, and I would say if you're interested, uh, I'm moderating a great panel on December 6th as part of the MIT Club uh, with a number of leaders in the cryptocurrency space to talk more about exactly that topic if you're interested. Uh, let's take that offline. Let me close the podcast, and I will answer your question. So just hold on for a second. Thank you very much, listeners, for listening. This is a very interesting discussion, and uh, if you're enjoying the podcast series, please go to iTunes and review the show, and we will come back to you with more on the topic.
topic of financing, trends in financing, as well as very, very interesting discussions with various entrepreneurs who are building super exciting companies. Speak soon. Goodbye.